to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, we're delighted to be hosting a conversation between award-winning authors Sarah Krasnerstein and Chloe Hooper about an enthralling new work from Sarah. Weaving together the stories of six extraordinary, ordinary people, The Believer looks at the stories we tell ourselves to deal with the distance between the world as it is and the world as we'd like it to be, how they can stunt us and how they can save us. Now, before we start, a quick reminder, this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, so there has been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. But now, here's the host of the event, Readings Programming Manager, Chris Gordon. So, good evening. My name is Chris Gordon. I am the Programming Manager for Readings. And on behalf of Readings and on behalf of Text Publishing, I am delighted to be sharing my Monday evening with so many of you. At the moment, I am speaking from the Kulin Nation and I would like to pay my respects and indeed give my heartfelt gratitude to their elders, past, present and emerging. And I do that, friends, for all of you here tonight because it just seems to me such a a necessary part of our day is that we need to acknowledge our privilege and the gift that the First Nations people have given us. And, of course, there are writers that have spent years investigating privilege, investigating our First Nations, the reasons why this country is not one that we can call equal but we can call beautiful. And, of course, I am talking about Chloe Hooper and her extraordinary work that we have seen not only in the monthly, not only in her beautiful book, award-winning The Tall Man, but also we see in the actions that she brings to discussions like this. She'll be talking with Sarah tonight. We're very fortunate to have these two women talking and sharing with us. If we were in a sort of a community hall at this point, I just know that the applause would be quite extraordinary. Over to you, Chloe. Thank you so much, Christine, and thank you for um, everything you do to support Australian writers. I think that, well, Sarah and I met at your house um, through your hospitality and generosity and and, uh, it's something we're both I hope. Well, I'm very grateful for Sarah. I, I shouldn't speak on your behalf, but thank you, Christine. Thank you, readings. And um, let's 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 jump right into it. Um, what a tremendous book, Sarah. I'm just in awe of you. I think it's um, such an achievement, and I, I hope um, those of you who who haven't got a copy, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. I always become a bit of a um, seller of steak knives, but this 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 is a book that really does cut through. So, um, thank you, Sarah, for writing it and sharing it with us. Um, it's very hard to sort of tunnel back to the start, but I wonder whether or not you can give us a little um, hint of of how this began. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here with you, Chloe. Um, and you are always welcome to put words in my mouth. It's actually better that way, please. <laughs> I think you're so lucky. Um, the start of the book, uh, of course, well, it's actually interesting. I'd like to know uh, how you know you're at the start of the book. I don't know that that's happening. 
and I didn't know with this, it was, um, I stumbled across the Mennonite choir that opens the book. Um, and they were uh, families that I ended up spending a few months with, but I literally stumbled across them in a subway station in New York City on my way to um, a library to continue working on um, another project. And it wasn't a conscious process of, oh, that's so journalistically intriguing. Um, that'd be interesting to write about. It was really like, what's going on here? I need to know more about these people for, for my own curiosity. Um, like, I just couldn't look away from them. So um, yeah, that, that research was, was the beginning of what turned out to be this book. Um, and it led me, those, the Mennonite families led me to the Creation Museum in Kentucky. Um, but I still didn't know, you know, that what these stories would end up being, if they were going to be, you know, standalone pieces or there was a book in one of them. Um, but it was really a process of kind of following the headlights as I got deeper in the stories. Um, yeah. It's interesting to me because you, you describe a few times how, um, the, their voice, the, the, the choir's voices even though sometimes the harmonies aren't perfect, it has this astonishingly sort of visceral, you have an astonishingly visceral reaction to it. Yes. And I, yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, no, tell us about that. So, I mean, it, it was a very bizarre sight. That's true. It yeah. was, um, they're Mennonites, so, you know, Amish as a sect that broke away from the Mennonites um, a, a while ago. And they, in their dress and their affects, they, I write, they do look like they're from a bygone era. So mm -hmm. there was that, they're also uniformly white and mm -hmm. the neighborhood in which I found them um, is black and Latino. Um, and no one looked twice at them and they were being largely ignored. And there was, there was a, a comic aspect to that. Um, you know, that was the first kind of yes. again, yeah. but, without irony, the music was beautiful to me and yes. it was extremely moving in a way that I was surprised by. It remains yes. very moving to me. Yes. I still listen to it. Um, yes. And I do have an emotional, visceral reaction to the, the harmony. Um, and while humor and mockery has its place in factual writing, I'm not gonna say it doesn't, I wouldn't spend four years of my life just to make fun of anyone or their belief. So it was this, you know, stay for the bizarre, what's going on here? And then, you know, think about my emotional reaction of what's going on for me that I'm so drawn to the sound that they're making. Yes. Um, yes, yeah, so that was the, the choir. It also seems to me that in some way um, there, um, I, I'm sorry if I've lost my train of thought. One of my children is banging on the door. Uh, that that actually their voices sort of almost suggest the form of the book um, because you know you write about how, how many how many people in the end are intricately profiled in this book. Well, there's about 14 main um, points of focus. Yes, and. It seems I was like the, the song almost kind of those it, it made its own cosmology for the book. In yeah, a that's way. exactly exactly right. So I had wanted to um, you know, I mean the theme of the the Mennonites was very much uniformity. They have this um, their beliefs are part of their 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 belonging. 
Um, but the more I followed these stories that led into each other um, with subjects vastly different in, in their enterprises and their personalities and their beliefs, the more I was hearing kind of thematic echoes and correspondences, you know, ideas being repeated and, and language being repeated and kind of the underlying emotion being repeated of longing and grief and frustration and fear and doubt. And so again, and the whole time I am coming back to uh, these uh, Mennonite songs and YouTube videos of the choirs themselves singing. And then I, you know, started to think, okay, formally in terms of the, the craft of how I, this would be structured, what would a house of unlike things look like? What would a song, a choral structure mm. where these very different stories could be interwoven in a way where um, they could harmonize in their underlying sentiment and their like their differences would be dissonances that kind of pointed us back to the ways in which we're similar and the ways in which we're different. Um, so formally, it was a bit of a challenge for me and interesting to me to, to weave them together to see if I could make that work. How did you recruit people to your choir? I mean, how, how, did, you what were the, how did you select them? Because there's a very kind of um, broad selection of, of voices. Yeah. So don't look at what they say, um, sausages or legislation or my narrative nonfiction being made. Uh, it's, it's a very messy process of largely just following um, something that somebody that I'm already speaking to will say that will kind of strike me in the same way that that side of the choir did. So there's something inside me that just is like plucked and I'll think, oh, I need to know more about that. Mm -hmm. um, or it could be something that they'll say that I'll find almost irrelevantly distracting. Um, just, like it just, it, it seems to be not relevant at the time, but it sticks out. And it's something that kind of calls attention to itself because it seems not to match what they're saying. So that's happened as well. Like I've followed a theme and found a subject in that way. Mm -hmm. um, or it'll be an idea that's come out of the research. And I think to myself, I wonder if that exists. And through a very kind of messy process of chasing all the Google rabbits down all the holes mm -hmm. come to a place where there's something interesting. So that's how I found Annie, um, the death doula. Mm -hmm. So the, the Mennonites had mentioned that they spent their um, corporate retreat at the um, Creation Museum in Kentucky mm -hmm. and that it was a place devoted to um, proving with science that the um, book of Genesis should be understood literally and the earth was created in 6,000 the, the earth was 6,000 years old and created in six days. Mm. Um, and once I was there, the scientists that I was speaking to, who had actual PhDs in microbiology and um, geology, uh, that kind of theme, again and again, I was hearing it, it, it was about death. It was about this feeling that, well, this had to be true in the Bible or else death would exist before man sinned. And that made no sense. And there could be no just God. So then I was thinking about this theme of a different, um, a different way of sitting with death and that fear and terror. And that led me to this profession of the, the death doulas. Mm. And it's not just that I'm interested in speaking to a death doula. I mean, I had spoken to a number of death doulas before I found Annie. It has to be something in the person that, that clicks. So that's how I ended up with Annie. So it, the, the, the short answer is it's different every time. 
Okay. But there'll always be something in what I'm already interested in that leads to the person. I like the way in this book, Sarah, you, um, you know, as you say, there's no, there's, there is a place for mockery in, in some nonfiction writing, but you really um, don't employ that, uh, you know, or it's, it's very barely, very barely there. And actually what you do is you, you kind of, um, you're testing the reader's belief as well, because you deliver these stories um, with um, the same weight um, and the same respect. So those who work at the Creationist Museum um, and then Annie's story, um, but also Ghostbusters and UFO. I mean, enthusiast sounds sounds sort of um, um, patronising, which is what something you never you never do and but but then there's an interesting thing that happens where um I will follow you you know I okay yes yes I believe you I believe you all right okay this is credible sorry I'm I'm out um and it's interesting our how our mind you know rebels against certain uh the, the this sort of the skepticism is like a kind of your own safe word or something yeah yeah, it's, well, I mean, it's not that these are ideas, but I'm talking about like the, the rest of us, I, referring to people that probably come to book events about literary nonfiction. Did I just say the rest of us? No, no, I, no, I, I was about to say it. So I was like, so like the, you know, the idea that there are things that we, whoever we are, are skeptical of, it, like that, that's just what it is. There's, you know, a certain rational way of looking at UFOs and UFO researchers and paranormal investigators that, you know, that's a norm, you know, a normal approach of talking about this stuff. Um, but you but, also actually, we see the fault lines in our own kind of bigotry. Because exactly. we're raised in a, you know, a lot of people are raised in a sort of Judeo-Christian tradition where actually religious beliefs seem easier to fathom if they're extreme than the paranormal. Right. And it's when you start to like kind of dig beneath the surface there, um, the, the, the story isn't how, how weird these other people are. The story is really that they're, that we're all pretty much similar in, you know, our daily routines and they are all, they were all lovely people. They were all very intelligent people. Yeah. Um, they were all, you know, had the same kind of daily stresses that I do. And so I was more interested in how they were making all of this work in their minds and also why, and also how I have similar tendencies. So, and hopefully if I'm doing that properly, the reader might see themselves in me seeing myself in, in these, uh, you know, at facially at least quite different um, people. Uh, so it was a different way of trying to get closer to something that seemed at first, you know, very locked in one, one way of looking at the world and the people that believe differently to us. I, I want to ask you more about that, but, but, um, I, I just want to first say I'm really in awe of how you make this work technically oh. because I mean, it, it's, uh, the, the braiding, I think that's a term you use that you've done is, I mean, to actually kind of make a reader invest in one character and then kind of slip in another and to do that continually 14 times. I mean, 
that's quite a, I mean, what's the sort of cup and ball game that yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you're I mean, a great con. Hey, thank, thank you. Ta-da. Here's the big reveal. It's, it's interesting. Like, I don't know if I can sustain it or, you know. if You did you know. sustain it, though. No, I mean, like, going for I hope so with this one. But I mean, going forward, of, like, try to always have a form that mirrors the content. Because I think artistically, it's interesting. Technically, it's a real challenge. Yeah. And if you lo- like, I, I'm a craft nerd. I love yeah. that in the books that I'm reading. Yes. It's hard to do it without making it too self-conscious. And, you know, it's. Um, or artificial, but you know, with, with the trauma cleaner, I wanted to mirror like how I saw the past and the present, and so that has an alternating structure chronologically. Mm-hmm. And then um, with the believer, I wanted all of these unlike things to be kind of going to this toward to the same place in a way that you know their their differences were at the forefront until they weren't, and then it was like, oh wow, that seems more familiar than at first. I would have thought so um yeah I mean I think it's interesting artistically uh but yeah very not not the recipe for for professional happiness it's an unwieldy process yes I can I can imagine that (laughs) um Sarah it seems to me that um you're very interested in those who've survived trauma and that this this links um the trauma cleaner and the believer and um and maybe one of the questions you're asking about um when you look at the survivors in the believer is um what what side did what side did you fall on belief or skepticism how did you perhaps that's a wrong extrapolation like no i think i kind of remain skeptical if I have to choose a position but probably not in the same way not not necessarily you your characters your we want to I mean I want to get to you but no no like so hold on like so your your, well it's it's also is I guess it's you know so much about how people have um coped oh seems to come down to you know, in, in their personal stories and the stories you've, you've. Yeah. yeah. So there was, well, that, I mean, I think that hopefully readers will say that that's what they do have in common. This kind of like central vulnerability um, that each of them have for different reasons. So there's stories about, you know, illness and injustice and uncertainty and, you know, real, um, you know, betrayal trauma and then this armor of story that had been intricately woven over time uh perfect systems closed systems but like you know all these different beliefs whether they were spiritual or religious or personal and they served a protective function i mean they were you know you could say you could buy into them and make them work or you could you know see them as neuroses covering up legitimate pain or you could, you know, see, or you could dismiss them entirely. But yeah, I mean, there was that constant um, question about, you know, what is the function of belief? What is the function of skepticism? And maybe those are even at the end of the day, aren't the right terms to be using. 
um, when we can actually just see at the heart all of these stories that are similar in their in their underlying feeling. I want to say vibe, but I don't think that's that's it. I think it's the feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I suppose you also uh, well, one of the moments that I that I like in the in the book is you 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 the, the sort of ballast in a way seems to be often, and I'm not sure what the right word to use is, your skepticism or your, let's say your questioning. Um, But you also have almost sometimes a kind of an envy of of, um, some of the, the, the true believers. Yeah, extremely jealous, extremely, um, Envious. I mean, they to be close to some of these um, stories and some of these people was to be close to the, the groups to which they were Im- embedded. And groups are fascinating to me. Um, I and and I think it's again comes back to this question of belonging. And like, I mean, I think you probably scratch the surface of any writer. Um, concerned with writing books and you might um find people that don't really feel at place particularly you know a strong sense of belonging in in most if any social milieus I think it's like a useful uh feeling to have you know this kind of um I feel out of place here it helps you see things clearer and uh differently but you know, that doesn't mean it's a great place to live. So I would, you know, see these people just, you know, this radiant kinship they had with people they were not related to. Um, you know, it was the very sound of the choir, all these voices together and anybody was welcome and it was imperfect. But if you bought in, you too could stand shoulder to shoulder with them and be utterly supported. Um, you know, the Mennonites, if, so, if one of them gets sick, everyone pulls together and pays for their their medical costs or any costs that, you know, a family in need would have. Um, the camaraderie of the uh, ghost hunters going out to do something and have a shared vocabulary and shared references. Um, and also a shared sense that the story is not necessarily going to end with death. No. Um, and then, you know, I, they sit on the stories to me, sit on a spectrum of rationality, which is not an insult. Like I don't like oh. I'm saying that in a mocking way, but um, Annie at one end uh, and Lynn, who had been incarcerated for 35 years for murdering her abusive husband. Yes. And you know, she has this very strong faith in a just God. And it was about, you know, these stories at that end that were kind of spacious enough to connect them to themselves and to other people in a rich thick way that also made room for all of the shitty parts of being alive so to have that kind of strong call to a faith in something yes i was extremely envious of that i i there's a term um that i like that seamus heaney heaney um describes the venturesomeness of supernatural faith And yeah, the vet, yes, the 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 possibility of uh, of a grand adventure on um, on the other side. It was shocking to me, Sarah, um, when you kind of w- worked down sort of the other end of the spectrum. Um, quite quickly, there seemed to be a anti-Semitic uh, subtext to, or or a kind of you know. 
you got two for the price of one. You got um, belief in aliens um, inseminating certain sort of chosen people and also, you know, Jews, Jews come from lizards or something. Which is strange because I really had felt myself to be as terrestrial as the next guy. But um, it was, you know, that was part of the UFO researchers chapter. And it was terrain um, where, you know, I mean, I had been thinking at the time that we have this disconnect between what what we say about our society and the values we would hope to adhere to and what we are demonstrating, what we are see, what we see on a daily basis in terms of, you know, our media and social media and, you know, fellow feeling and real, you know, injustice and hatred probably is no worse than it's ever been, but, you know, we're seeing so much more of it in the fire hose of our, our technology. And, how that inevitably leads to so much choice between what's factual and then, you know, this gap between, you know, what, what we, this question about what, what is evidence, what is fact. And it was terrain in which with certain of the UFO researchers, all facts were equal. And, you know, you couldn't just have a conversation about aliens or UFOs or um, any of that without it leading into all conspiracy theories. And so while I was there for the first part and I could kind of buy buy well, that. That's the interesting trick you play on the reader of how, how far are you going to, you know, how far will you come along? You can, and because, you know, the marketplace of ideas is large, but it's not infinite. And so mm-hmm. this quality of, yes, we can, we, we can make room for differences of ideas, we can see that, you know, this is crowded territory with, you know, the amount of opinions that are out there. But as soon as we learn our, as soon as, as, soon as we lo- lose this capacity for discernment, it is an extremely dangerous place because, you know, we let too much information in. We tamp down that voice of, you know, discernment and, and rightful judgment that we all have. And there's no kind of touchstone between for for what's right factually or morally anymore and then it really opens the door to you don't believe yourself lack of self-belief the start of self-loathing and blaming of others and then it is just this messy morass so that was quite confronting particularly because I did like speaking to those people well I like the way that that you frame that scene where it's like I'd like to come to this party too and then slowly (laughs) yes um No, it's uh, very interesting. I wondered whether or not you would explain to us a little about the concept of um, tikkun tikkun alam. Tikkun alam. Yeah, no, it was good. It was good. It was close. It was good. You know, I'm like a wasp. Sorry. No, no. (laughs) So um, tikkun alam means to to repair the world, and it's a principle, uh, it's a Jewish ethical principle and also a religious principle um, that I uh, kind of was thinking of a lot in the the Mennonite prayer meeting, not because they brought it up, um, but it would have been an interesting discussion to have often, and we've spoken about this, Chloe, it's not, there's the, you know, reporting on someone and learning about their, their world does not involve, uh, you know, equal exchange of feelings and ideas. So that's why I did not bring it to the table. But sitting with what was said in that meeting, 
um, it had, it really did draw me back to this concept of what it would mean to repair the world. And it has its origins in the Kabbalistic conception of the Big Bang, basically, and how our work on Earth is to, um, you know, put, put back all the pieces to their rightful place, um, to a more perfect union of, of people and, and things in the world. I'm not particularly religious in uh, that sense of having conversation of, you know, God's place in the Big Bang or any of that. But I think in, ter in terms of this, a social principle or a social justice principle, this idea of what actual repair would look like would probably start with, um, and, you know, come back to something that Annie told me, the death doula, she is a practicing Tibetan Buddhist for 40 years, um, of getting closer to something that scares you. And so instead of like an active, you know, act of forcing people or massaging them to believe like we do, maybe it would just be the act of staying with something that's highly uncomfortable or confronting or enraging to hear and listening again, um, not just to the factual reality of what is being said, but perhaps to the emotional reality of why it's being said and all the things that are not being said. Um, and so this idea of social repair was something that was kind of tugging at me as I went to the Mennonite service. And then it kind of followed me through each of the stories. Uh, it must have been with you strongly in the Creationist Museum. Yes. The yeah. idea of, of going into a space which is um, um, counterphobic. In a, I mean, a kind of, it's a kind of counterphobia, isn't it? Yes, and this kind of again and again and all of the, you know, uh, it was literally written on the walls, you know, it, it's not meant to be like this. Why do we die? Why is there war? It's something mm -hmm. that we did um, in our, you know, our sinful nature. And then using all of the history of science, cherry picking from the history of science to make that, you know, just to justify why, you know, we should have a literal understanding of, of Genesis. And so again, like, it's not going to, I'm not going to engage with that in a logical, you know, takedown. I'm, but I am going to try to see, you know, what is it in me that is pushing against that same kind of factual reality? What is that feeling of wanting things to be other than they are? Um, and deluding ourselves and, you know, really locating blame with ourselves when what we want is not what we get. Um, yeah, but the the idea that the world is broken and not how it should be was quite quite prevalent um, at the Creation Museum. It's um it it comes to you when you're when you're with the with the Mennonites, but actually it seems as though you know the book is is a kind of um, taking the shards and putting them together as well. Did you think of of the work as? Well, that's what I had hoped for. So thank you. Yes. And if only this, if only, yeah, that's lovely. Yes. The answer is yes. And um, I had, um, you know, there was a quote by Theodore Adorno, who probably no one enjoys reading anymore, but I do. Um, Cancel, yeah. No, sorry. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but it's about, you know, what harmony in art looks like and, um, it was, I'm going to butcher it, obviously, cannot say it in the uh, right way, but it was, you know, we achieve harmony in a work of art, not by falsely um, forcing all the pieces together, but by making room 
for them all to sit alongside each other in the same in the in the same place. So dissonance is going to be a part of that. Discordance is going to be a part of that. But if we can order um, things that are similar enough in the same structure, maybe that could hint towards what a more perfect social vision might look like. And so the stories do have these correspondences and echoes that the readers can make for themselves. Everything is in there for a reason, mm -hmm. um, but they don't have the same, you know, it's not going to be this perfect, um, you know, all tied up in a ribbon because that's not life. That is what we have to sit with. It's not gonna look like that. We try to get as close as I can. <laughs> yeah. It seems as though, I mean, you know, one of the ribbons that, that does tie this through is um, a confrontation with death that you are having um, throughout these these different stories. Yeah. Um, well, because you know what could be more absolute than than death. So it's all all of the you know the difficult parts of being alive. Um, Annie's work with um, helping people die, and the woman who she did help die, Katrina was one of the starkest examples that Annie would call it a great teacher. And I write about how when she says the words great teacher, my blood runs cold because it doesn't sound like anything's great about it. But what she means is the parts of being alive that we can either confront and live in a more enlarged, practiced, kind, kindly way, or that we can continue to ignore to our detriment. Um, take it out on ourselves, take it out on others, that we're just not getting what we want. So death, the hard fact of death was, you know, the best example of that philosophy. Um, but I think each of the stories kind of comes back to a form of grief that's not necessarily just about death, but we do see it. Death in the um, ghost uh, investigators and in the UFOs, the story of Valentich, who was the pilot that disappeared. Um, it's, and, a, it's an astonishing. Um, had you heard about Valentich before? I hadn't, no. Mm -hmm. And the reconstruction of, of his story and the beautiful way that you locate um, his, he, he and his fiance's romance in 1978, is that mm -hmm. right? And yeah. uh, what was happening then? And I, I mean, it was, um, um, that's what I mean. You, you really challenge us to believe in what seems unbelievable. But see, this is, and see, so that's a story of, uh, you know, he might have died, he disappeared, it's uncertainty. Yes, of course. But for her, that's a love story. That's a and that's a story about real grief of waking up one morning and your fiance is just gone, and he's gone forty years later. He's gone every day since, and so it was, you know, this real story of you know the grief for the life that she could have had, yes. and always seeing doubly, and it, that you know that was kind of this uh, another thing that was always kind of present for me was this dissonance of how we keep in our head you know, what we would like to be true and what we just know is probably not true. And, you know, that kind of seeing, seeing doubly. Um, and also, you know, the question of the, what's the function of, of doubting? I mean, um, you know. It's, it's, um, you know, while I'm, I'm always interested in this question because as you know, I, I also have small children or mine are, mine are getting bigger than yours now, but while you're writing this book, I did. Was uh, your first son born while you were writing um, 
trauma cleaner? Yes, in the at the start. Yeah. Okay. I've never written a book yet without a newborn. <laughs> Don't recommend okay. it. All right. So um I I mean that writing with small kids around is another um well, that's a kind of, I mean, I, I, you know, they're, they're in the choir too, really, aren't they? Oh, I think, you know, it's like, it's probably not a conversation I would have with anyone who wasn't in that position. But I think that, you know, we, the challenge is not just that writing is a bitch and 99% of the time hard. I mean, it's not like working in a coal mine, but it is extremely hard work. And, but it's not even that we don't even get to complain about that because even getting to the desk and getting the material, especially if you're doing factual writing and you need to go out into the world and retrieve it. I mean, we're talking about very difficult conditions, but I've always thought that it doesn't have to be kids, but it could be anything in your life that is emotionally um, deeply challenging or physically deeply challenging. I think all of that kind of ends up going back into the, the work in some way. Or so I tell myself while I'm still in the thick of it. <laughs> right. Well, see, there we are. We've come back to your belief. Yeah. Um, I and, believe that now. And I'm, you know, I'm like, I want to be a believer. So I actually feel I'm getting the message from Christine that we've got five minutes. Just hold, hold up, Christine. Um, you know, and I think the thing is, I think you are a believer in in writing and in asking questions in writing, and um, so I mean that seems to me in the end the kind of um, sorry, it, it it in in all my hand gestures it fell off, but uh, um, <laughs> you know this is the sort of artifact, isn't it, of of belief in a way. I think like in, in, well, so far, you know, when I'm writing and trying to see what's in the material of, you know, what's before me, what I think I'm writing about at the start is not really where I end up because it's a process over time of seeing really what, what is in the material that you've gathered, yes. you know, and I feel in this, the second book was really a question of, um, it, it was knitted together during last year, mm -hmm. uh, specifically during our second lockdown. Mm -hmm. um, and I felt sometimes that I was talking myself out of, out of a hole. And so it was, you know, a question of what I was seeing in, in the stories that I had gathered, uh, what I was listening to that I hadn't really wanted to listen to at first, possibly mm -hmm. for the first three years of sitting with some of these stories mm -hmm. and then allowing the material to kind of speak very, very uncomfortable for somebody with a type a personality who wants to do all the homework and write it up all neatly that's not at all what it looks like the writing is the thinking but i think what i learned this time was that it's also the feeling and that that's okay like that only enlarges the work um i hope so yeah i ended up in a very different place from where i started but um I, i'm well with that there's a there's a piece of music that is um, very important to you that you mention in the book, and um, uh, we've got you know probably one minute left, and I um, I have it queued up, and I'm not going to say where it comes in the book, um, but it's very important to uh, Sarah, and I think that for the last minute, 
or two minutes, we should actually, do you mind if we hear it? Oh, that's amazing. Yes, that's right. We're not very good with technology, so let's just see what happens. Wow. It's uh, Winton Marsalis and uh, playing uh, Canon for Three Trumpets and Strings. Um, oh. And it's, what have I done here? Is that coming through? It is. That's so lovely. Oh my gosh. So let's be believers here together in Sarah, <laughs> if nothing else. <laughs> oh, that's really lovely. <laughs> so, Sarah. I have to warn you that there's a note we all have to listen out for. I know I'm ruining it a bit, but wait. Christine, can you hear this? of the the better night choirs that I listen to on YouTube that that it is they're actually worse quality than just an iPhone at a remove and it's so and every time it just reduced to a puddle so yeah this is, this is uh I'm gonna mispronounce it tikkun alam I'm so grateful to you let's put the pieces back together beautiful thank you thank you uh Chloe and Sarah that was a little bit of a, a gift there tonight. Uh, I think what makes your writing, both of your writings, so extraordinary is that somewhere along the line, I don't know how it happened, and it's difficult for women, you, you forgot to be frightened and you just put yourself in there right in the middle of all of these emotions. And for, I'm pretty sure that I speak for the audience here when I say thank you. Thank you for doing that, Sarah. Thank you for doing that, Chloe. Thank you to have you two chatting away like that tonight, a gift. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, Chloe, for everything. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for staying. Kind of perfect. <laughs> and the crowd goes crazy. All right. <laughs> You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, 
where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. There, you can also sign up to our e-news or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this podcast was provided by Tom Hoskins and Quentin Marsalis. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded.